Hello, and welcome to this week's segment of Two Worlds, One Country. I'm your host, Anthony Flacavento, and those of you who follow Two Worlds, One Country on WEHC or WISC-FM or on podcasts, Apple, Spotify, and elsewhere, you know that this is a program focused on how we overcome what divides us. And a whole lot of things divide us right now. We like to focus on how we got into this divide and then interview the people who are successfully and effectively doing things to overcome the divide. And my guest today exemplifies that, Matt Morrison. I've known Matt now for a little over a year. He is a partner of the Rural Urban Bridge Initiative, and he's a partner of Ruby because he's the executive director of Working America, an entity that focuses on listening to people, overcoming uh, barriers between us, and effectively building a better, stronger democracy that works for everybody. So delighted to have you with us today, Matt. Delighted to be here, Anthony. Thank you so much for having me. 100%. So what I would like to start with, as we generally do, is a little bit about yourself. Tell us about um, where you were born and raised, a little bit about that, and then we'll move on to your professional life and how you got to the place where you are now. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I'm a Washington, D.C. native, uh, born but not necessarily raised. My father uh, is a retired journalist, so that's like being a military brat. You get to move around and see a lot of different parts of the country. Um, but really, kind of where I'm from is a set of uh, generations that came just before me. My grandparents, uh, uh, my parents, etc., were of that first generation of Black Americans who started to work their way into uh, the professional classes, uh, federal employees uh, uh, here in D.C. Uh, as business owners, uh, that type of thing. And so I have this perspective that's been built from both being working class. Uh, but also from just entering uh, uh, that part of the economy. Uh, having grown up in lots of different parts of uh, the country, uh, here in D.C., uh, New Jersey, Alabama, uh, Georgia, and uh, St. Louis, uh, I've had a chance to really get a taste of difference. You know, I remember as a kid when we moved to Alabama, the favorite thing that uh, kids uh, and even the adults teased me with uh, how I spoke like a northerner. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, 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 at first, so it's a little isolating, but what you saw pretty quickly was that you know, folks talk differently, but they live the same. And so that's really undergirded a lot of what my life assumptions have been uh, as I built a career of trying to engage people. Sure. Let me ask you, when, when kids were telling you that you talked like a northerner, because I, I heard that when I first moved to Appalachia many years ago, um, did you, how'd you react to that? Did you feel like you wanted to change how you talked, or were you sort of proud of it, or what did you do about that? Uh, you know, I was probably a little proud of it. My father's family has lineage uh, from Barbados, and if you know any Asians, they uh, make jokes about how uh, they are more British than the Britons. Right. <laughs> at least in some of uh, the mannerisms and uh, even language. So it was, you know, kind of core to my identity. Uh, so it was, it was less a question of what is a signal about kind of a cultural relationship and more just a great conversation starter. 
Yeah. Now, all those different places you mentioned, D.C., Alabama, St. Louis, there was one or two more in there. Was that all before you went off to college? I mean, that was all when you were a kid? So St. Louis was uh, college. Uh, okay. So, t- so tell us then about college. Where'd you go to school? What'd you get your degree in? And what happened after that? Yeah, so I went to Washington University in St. Louis for both undergraduate and law school. This was back in the 90s, and it was a really interesting time to be in St. Louis, both to study, but also to learn from living in the city. St. Louis is a fascinating, fascinating microcosm of America. You have black workers who largely migrated from the South. Uh, you have white workers. Uh, and a lot of, uh, at that point, a lot of segregation at the neighborhood level. I recall one time visiting the old uh, uh, courthouse in downtown St. Louis where the Dred Scott decision was heard. And you look at the exhibits on the wall and what were the animating social divisions at that time. And you see so much of how that still exists in the current city. You know, uh, black people living on the north side, white people living on the south side, and a very limited intermingling of, of people and populations, and pretty stark uh, divisions between the city and the county. Those things really helped inform the actual course of study in the classroom for me, uh, understanding uh, what that historic legacy meant for. Uh, things like what was the composition of the workforce and how economies developed in the industrial Midwest and how they excluded uh, different populations uh, over time. Understanding what the fuller context was of federal policy investments going back to the New Deal. These are things that you see firsthand and not just academics, but you also see how they play out and privilege the haves and create the have-nots in some ways. So that was truly a formulative period for me. And so if you think of the 90s in that period, you also see a lot of those same echoes show up even decades later in the killing of Michael Brown. The divisions that we often saw on display in St. Louis were kind of pretty evident uh, even then. And I suspect uh, those are the types of social uh, divisions that we are all currently trapped in when we talk about the series of divides that separate uh, uh, American people. Yeah. And so when you were in, you were living that experience in, in St. Louis and you were going to law school at that point, was that driving a particular desire of what, what you would do with your law degree? Like, did you think you'd be a, you know, a human rights lawyer or a, a social justice, racial justice oriented attorney or what, where, how did that influence that? Lord, no. I wanted to be a tax lawyer. <laughs> I'm a nerd. <laughs> I, 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 I love logic. I love math. I love kind of the construct of uh, clarity. And the rest of that stuff just felt like mumbo jumbo, constitutional arguments and different um, subjective opinions. Uh, obviously, it was a bit more than that. But it actually served me well to think in those terms, to think in that type of structure uh, in ways that I had I would have never been able to anticipate. It set a predicate for a systems in a math-oriented approach to all of the work that, I, that would come later. Yeah, and when, when you start talking about the details of Working America, people will hear some of that, that it's a very rigorous and analytics-oriented group. But that's so funny that you, you wanted to be a tax lawyer and, and it served you well. That's great. I love that. So cool. So yeah, you, I mean, my, my, but just to finish up, on sure. what brought me to the movement was that I wanted a career in social justice. Uh, what brought me, what brought me to the movement was that I had no other life experience except 
the absence of economic and social justice. Uh, when you live in Alabama, when you live in Georgia, when you grow up black in America, you see it close and personal all the time. And so that was, you know, we've all been down at some point in our lives. And uh, it's always fascinating to look back and see which pieces of puzzle fit together. And for me, it was uh, lived experience that defined my career uh, choices and even opportunities that I was able to pursue. Uh, rather than a set of intention choices, which I think is probably more uh, like most Americans' experiences uh, than not. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's we all have a set of lived experiences, whatever they are, and we can either kind of run away from them or deny them, um, try to forget about them, or, or we can use them to uh, guide us. And it's clear that you, you did that. You wanted to tackle some of the very things that you had lived through. So I, I want to get to work in America, but one, one last bit before we segue there is kind of that period after you completed your studies and before you uh, became the director of Work in America. Tell us in a nutshell uh, what you did during those years. Uh, yeah, so I got out of St. Louis uh, as fast as I could. I wanted uh, <laughs> to get to a place that felt a little bit more inclusive and getting back home to D.C. Uh, mid-century. So in 1998, I uh, was an intern uh, working in Capitol Hill and then transitioned uh, to a, a job working for the Congresswoman for D.C., Eleanor Holmes Norton, for a few years. Oh, wow. What uh, a privilege that uh, must have been. It really was. I mean, Eleanor is legendary. And to work for her directly, you get to experience uh, the fullness of that legend. Uh, so you, you, you really do appreciate the long arc of history uh, of working on something like that. Sure. But it set me in motion to ultimately move on to the American Federation of Teachers for a bit, where I both lobbied on uh, special education and policy and that type of thing, but also uh, worked on campaigns. And that's where I got my real first taste of uh, campaigning life. I had the privilege of joining the John Edwards presidential campaign uh, back in uh, uh, 2008 and uh, spent about a year and a half trying to help build a constituency political program that really put his message and his vision front and center across different communities. You know, didn't win the election, but I always am grateful for seeing the policy adopted, uh, adopted as for so many of the policies Edwards uh, championed uh, being adopted, uh, even today. Yeah, yeah. A lot of us were really excited about his campaign, and of course, ultimately, it had problems and went south. But boy, he he was he really was speaking for a lot of the, the people that we, you and I, have been working with ever since. So, okay, that's that's great. That's your very extensive and diverse career in in probably too much of a nutshell. But let's jump to work in America, and let's start with a little discussion, maybe some examples or some data or however you want to approach this, with the kinds of results that work in America gets. Because I know enough about you and work in America. I don't know it as intimately as I should, but I know enough to know that you're a group that's really made a difference and that you measure what you do so it's not just a rhetorical case that you make, but you have numbers behind your case. So why don't, why don't you give me a couple of or so different examples of where you've taken an approach and you have seen real change or real results 
and, and then we'll back up into, okay, how the heck did you do that? What was the strategy behind it? But let's start with the results. Well, you know, one of the things that you made mention of and in our experiences is that our approach towards measurable outcomes is not standard uh, industry practice, if you will, whether it's in organizing or politics. And when I came to Working America back in 2008 off the Edwards campaign, I was excited to be involved with an organization with, that I had never seen anything like before. Uh, when you go to the door, you see the art of an organizer uh, shape the interaction with a perfect stranger from little things like how they hold a clipboard to where you place your eye contact. I was in love, hmm. but I was also trying to figure out how do you know what works? Um, at the time, the industry standard in some ways still, still today is um, you measure your inputs, how many doors you knock, how many conversations you have. And the question that that begs is, well, does that change anything? And what should you actually be uh, spending your time and resource applying this awesome tool towards? Um, we since built the organization into the type of place where we know how many uh, votes are being generated by virtue of having those conversations. So the inputs tied to the outcomes. Uh, we know how many people's lives are changed by virtue of the communication. And we try to really make sure that we are crystal clear as a mechanism to hold ourselves accountable. So for example, uh, one of the projects that we've been working on is helping build adoption uh, or take up of the Affordable Connectivity Program uh, that President Biden has helped expand, reaching households about 200% of the federal poverty level below. Through a series of campaign efforts, we were able to find that for about the cost of about $25 of organizing inputs, we could get um, a person all the way through that funnel and claiming this important benefit. There's still about 30 million people, excuse me, 30 million households, not 30 million people, uh, covering uh, something in the ballpark of 70 million human beings who don't have this benefit. Now, when you think about the fact that most Americans could not uh, cover an unexpected $400 expense, and we have organizing strategies that can put about that much money per year back in someone's pocket um, by virtue of uh, getting them access to something that the president and Congress uh, mandated, then you start to see the building blocks for building a different type of relationship between constituent and government, uh, between where they stand economically, their precarious position versus the opportunity to grow, whether their kids have high-speed internet or internet at all uh, so that they can participate in the knowledge economy. Uh, these are the tangible building blocks that we see as essential uh, to expand on, not just winning votes, although we do win a lot of votes as well. So that's really interesting, Matt. That, that's probably, in, in addition to it being unusual that you measure things so closely and you get beyond just the how hard we worked. <laughs> we knocked so many doors, we were exhausted. You actually get to results. But, but the results you're seeking aren't just somebody embracing a particular policy or a candidate, but practical things that make a difference in people's lives. You, you got, actually sent folks out to help people through the process so that they could get this affordable access to Wi-Fi that was becoming available. I, I didn't realize that. You're actually out there helping people have a better life. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. We're, we're very well known for elections. We 
care a lot about elections. They have consequences. They are the reason that we're able to pass these, like the uh, American Rescue Plan and uh, the bipartisan infrastructure bill and, and so forth. But that's kind of our side hustle. What we spend most of our time thinking about is the 365 days a year, or the what's it, uh, 1,400 days or so um, in between elections, where someone has to make the rent, uh, where they have to actually choose whether or not to ration access and care uh, for themselves, especially when you are in a high need context, you have high levels of food insecurity, which leads to uh, high levels of diabetes and other uh, social indicators that they kind of spiral you out of control. If we focus on the whole life cycle of working class people, then the politics is kind of easy uh, because people know that you are there in, uh, in furtherance of their actual interest. I don't want to say that we've cracked enough completely. It is hard work. I'm not satisfied with a, uh, an accomplishment that says, hey, we can get $360 a year back in your pocket. Uh, by giving a disc getting a discount on on uh, your phone bill, what we need to understand is how do we create the structural incentives where we all as actors in the economy are able to navigate up that ladder instead of just the privileged few. Yeah. So is it the case that some of the same households that you visit to help walk people through, in this case, the affordable uh, access to Wi-Fi and other practical things. Are you then at some point going back to those same households to kind of see where they are on particular issues or policies and then trying to influence that as well? Is it, is it a, kind of a one-two punch that, that you're, you're engaging with these folks more than one, one time? Yeah, absolutely. It's I'd add maybe three, four punch. Uh, the door is the best way to establish any relationship. People trust you when they can see you face to face, but it's not the only way to maintain it. So once we have a relationship, then we are in communication. You and I are talking over uh, uh, different technological right now. And so the ability to be modern uh, in how we are interacting and making sure that we're engaging people means that you know, we're talking to an existing working America member uh, uh, two to three times a month across different channels. Uh, we're trying to be consistent we scaled up in our interactions so we can get a lot of observations. And the more observations you have, of course, the easier it is for you to detect differences, whether having been engaged in an affordable connectivity uh, outreach program, for example, increases your receptivity to taking an action like commenting in the Federal Register. One of the regulations for implementing the Inflation Reduction Act, are you able to create a different type of residence when you solicit someone to become a voter or to vote for your candidate. And we see pretty clear indications that once you have a relationship, as long as you keep coming back to it again and again and again, you're going to be so much more productive and effective whatever your outcome, whatever outcome you're having at, than if you are just transactional and aren't thinking about the whole human. Because those folks are feeling like they're, they're part of the team. They're not just an anonymous person that happened to have their door knocked on and they'll never see him again. They're actually becoming uh, an active member, agency, we use that term these days, but they, they're feeling like they can make a difference as well as being benefited. Is that right? Actually, I want to be a little contrarian on that point. Sure, sure. Um, I think that there's in you know, progressive uh, spaces, especially this vision of full citizenship, 
where uh, folks have this aha moment and say, oh, all right, now I found, I found my, my movement home. And we all know from our existence day to day that most people, just, they're concerned about themselves, their family, what's close to them. That's common in every part of the country I live, in every part of the country I work. And so we focus not on trying to move people into uh, that type of active and animated uh, sense of, of, I'm an agent uh, in, in the change. That'd be nice, and that's where we ultimately want to get to. But you, there's so much real estate between where we are and that, that just giving people some basic framework to understand that they are part of an overall system matters greatly. Whether they recognize, yes, I am a diehard um, card-carrying Working America member or part of uh, the change that I want to see in the world or not. I think that we really owe it to ourselves and to our vision for what an economy looks like to respect that working class people are busy and what they are looking for is a little bit of convenience and respect in their lives. You do that and then, you know, uh, you, you're, you're not just a, uh, a an attack ad from a super PAC that uh, no one can remember the name of or understand what it's all about. Yeah, yeah. No, I appreciate that. That's a really helpful uh, clarification of what I was thinking. So. Cool. So, so you clearly get results, and part of how you get results is by treating people as as people worthy of respect, and uh, you build long-standing relationships with them to whatever degree they're willing and able to do that. Tell us a little bit now about the strategies that Working America employs to make this happen. Now, we. You know, we're, it's a short show, and we'll probably have you back at some point. So we can't we can't hear the full range because I know you've got a lot of different things going on. But maybe starting with the the how of uh, the canvassing and door knocking, and then giving us a sense of one or two other key elements of your strategy. How, basically, the question is, how did you all get to be so effective? Well, you know, I mentioned to you that when I came, I was looking for a playbook. This thing was really effective. You could just see it. You didn't need evidence. Um, you just observe. <laughs> how people changed at the door when interacting with the canvasser. So I was a believer, but I was asked at one point after a particularly brutal loss to say, all right, well, what are you doing with all of this? Like, how do you know that you're the right guy to do this work? And it set me on this course of trying to figure out how do you know what impact you're having? What you know from interactions at the door is that you follow a certain structure. You're who, who, you're what, what. I'm Matt from Working America. We're the community organizing arm, the NFL-CIO. I'm out here today because the problem, the special interests have all of the power, and we're not even able to expand Medicaid right here in Georgia. It would be nice for 700,000 of our neighbors to be able to uh, uh, get health care, right? Uh, it'd be nice for our hospitals to not be closing. This is happening in rural Georgia. This is happening in uh, Southside Atlanta, where black people live. This is happening to a lot of us. You agree with that is a problem, right? Right. So the solution is shrink the numbers, join, take action. There's a very clear psychological journey that you're trying to walk people through, and it changes how they view themselves both in that moment and how they listen going forward. Because quite frankly, no one else is showing up and saying, you're standing at the economy matters and you're an agent in that process. But also, so that's the underlying theory of respect. We're just organizers, that's all. It's nothing magical uh, if uh, uh, you've ever knocked a door. But the other part of it is pairing that with a system of rigorous analytics. And so I think what 
probably drew your attention and so many other people's attention to our work is our system of uh, constant testing and adjustment based on the results of randomized controlled trials of all of the work we do. So you can take a population of people and you can randomly divide them uh, just like you do in a, um, a clinical trial for a new vaccine and then say, hey, you get the sugar pill, no communication or uh, something about uh, recycling. Uh, just you know, that's not going to influence uh, your behavior on a political question. And the other person gets the actual medicine, so they get a political message. They get a call to action about taking financial benefit. You, you're trying to get, get comparability uh, of those populations so that then you can say, hey, if there's any difference after we communicate it, then it's isolated <clears throat> and caused by what we, what we communicated. By doing that again and again and again, we're able to say, oh, this wasn't just you know, a one-off. This is a thing that consistently works. And that builds the strategy going forward. So like any body of learning, the more you learn and incorporate that into your hypothesis formation and every testing and validation cycle, the uh, stronger you get. And that's, quite frankly, how we've been able to structure some of the um, really market increases in vote share that we've been able to help generate for some of the candidates. So give us an example, or, or maybe it can be a general general statistic, but give us an example of, of where you were able to move those vote shares pretty substantially so that people understand that. Yeah, I uh, was actually just working on some of our uh, 2022 uh, post-election analysis work and just struck at the scale of uh, some of uh, these impacts. If you look at uh, the Arizona gubernatorial election uh, with Katie Hobbs uh, facing uh, Carrie Lake, she won that race by about 17,000 votes. Our work alone from using that series of tactics generated about 22,000 votes for her. So, but for that type of intervention, Carrie Lake becomes governor of Arizona. And wow. I don't know that any of us want that particularly. It across races um, up and down the ballot that are critical to really the perpetuation of our, of our democracy. So, and even in places where we weren't uh, creating more votes than the overall uh, margin of victory, uh, it's still substantial. I, uh, our, our biggest um, uh, impact of the 22 cycle came from the Pennsylvania Senate uh, contest with John Fetterman. We were able to contribute about 120,000 extra votes uh, for his campaign. That, you know, he, he won by uh, just over 200,000 votes. So, like, he had a pretty healthy margin, but those types of tactics also mean that we're able to go back to those same voters um, right now and continue to explain to them what's happening in the economy, what their opportunities are to take care of their basic needs, you know, shelter, housing, uh, shelter, food, health, uh, wages, etc. Uh, and then when we do ask for their vote again, going into the next uh, uh, wave of elections, we've been there all along. We've had the ongoing relationship. We've spoken to, to their needs, and we can help generate that type of structural advantage uh, for our candidates. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I'm, we need to move towards wrapping up, but it, it occurs to me that it, in a lot of ways, what you're doing with this long-term relationship that you're building with just everyday folks starting at their doors is really closely analogous to what Ruby's been preaching in, in a new initiative that we're in the process of launching our community works, which is about basically getting local liberals, local Dems, 
to, in addition to whatever they do politics-wise, to, to re-engage with the community in completely non-political ways by joining forces with you know, civic groups or churches or business associations to actually address real problems in the community and start rebuilding relationships that used to be fairly strong but have been largely you know, kind of whittled away at all of the polarization and the anger, et cetera. And our firm contention is that as we do that at our local level, it'll be so much more fruitful to then begin having conversations about the tough issues and about the policies and the candidates. But we got to start by showing enough respect and attention that folks actually begin to feel like we're in this together. I'm really glad to hear you're doing that. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're thrilled about it. So let's wrap up, Matt. This has been terrific with um, kind of looking forward. Do you see some either new frontiers that that you, you hope to jump into or just some, some gaps in the broader progressive movement? Wow, that's not a small question. No, it uh, isn't. And you've got 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah. Well, of all of the gaps and of all of the needs and all of the I, I think that we should never lose sight of what are the fundamentals that are shaping our When I look at where we want to get to longer term, it's, you know, I mean, we all need to fund this work and you know, all that other stuff. But it's building the cadre of people who understand that it doesn't take a lot. It just takes all of us doing a little bit and doing our part. And not only can we prevail, but we kind of can't lose if we do that. Hmm. Hmm. Boy, that's a nice thought, because I, I think on the progressive side, in too many ways, we've become so accustomed to losing that we sort of feel like we can't win. So to hear you kind of wrap us up by saying if, if we do it right, if we realize that uh, by being systematic about it and um, very collaborative so we become a, a, a force of many, uh, we kind of can't lose. That, that's really encouraging. So great. Uh, Matt, I really want to thank you for being on Two Worlds, One Country. I really appreciate you taking the time and sharing uh, these insights today. 